Pray with me, please. Father, we come as people who are broken in need of mending, people wounded in needing of healing. Yet as we have begun to look last week and will continue this week to consider the condition into which we have fallen, this new corruption that affects not only the creation but affects our very natures, we recognize that our first impulse is not to come to you. Our first impulse is to cover our guilt, to hide from you, and that none here would first seek you unless you said, where are you? So God, as we turn to your word, help us to see clearly not only the brokenness that sin produces, but that there is no covering that we can provide for ourselves other than casting ourselves upon your mercy, confessing our sin and discovering again that you are faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. We ask for your help this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Turn with me in your copy of the Scriptures to the book of Genesis, chapter 3, please. In his famous novel, The Scarlet Letter, Nathaniel Hawthorne tells a story about shame. The setting of the story is a Puritan colony located in Massachusetts Bay. And at the opening of the story, the town is all astir because a woman named Hester Prynne has been caught in adultery. The man has managed to escape detection somehow, but the evidence of Hester's guilt is clear and is beyond dispute. And this has opened Hester not only to the public shame and humiliation of having her guilt exposed and known by all, but adultery in those, uh, those times was a crime. So she has been placed into the hands of the law. She has been confined as a prisoner, awaiting to learn her fate, and as the story opens, the magistrate has just handed down his sentence. And her punishment is that for her whole life, for the rest of her life, she is required to wear emblazoned on her frock a scarlet letter, a crimson A that will mark her for life as adulteress. Every eye that sees her from that moment forward will immediately know the guilt of her sin. Every first impression made of her will be shaped by the exposure of her guilt. A scarlet letter that she cannot hide. Does our sin do that to us? Does it hopelessly, irrevocably mark us with shame? Does it brand us with unforgivable guilt? Last week we came to the foot of a tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And at the base of that tree we watched as the first man and the first woman made a choice there. Standing in the middle of the garden, surrounded by the evidence of God's love and care and provision for them, they chose to rebel against this God who had created them. They decided that they would be like God, not on His terms, but on their terms. And so they took and they ate what God had forbidden them. It was the first and decisive step in mankind's rejection and rebellion against God, but of course we know it would not be our last. And now God's very good creation begins to experience for the first time some new change, but not for the better. It begins to experience 
corruption. And that corruption begins at this tree and progressively to work outwards. And it is those at the epicenter of this act, the two standing beneath the tree, who feel the effects of this corruption first. And the immediate aftertaste of the forbidden fruit is not the triumph that sin had promised them. The immediate aftertaste of this fruit is a devastating sense of shame. Chapter 3, verse 7, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. As we consider our passage this morning, I want to structure our time around the Word around three summary application thoughts that emerge from this passage. So here's the first. Sin always produces unbearable shame. The man and the woman eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and then the text says that immediately their eyes are opened which does not mean that they were unable to physically see before. It means now that they have a new way of seeing. And what is the first thing that the text says that they see? What is the first discovery that they make with this new kind of knowing that they have received from the knowledge of good and evil? They know suddenly, they see suddenly that they are naked. We said before that their nakedness is not simply a physical description of the physical condition in which they find themselves, but it is a moral description of the moral condition in which God has created them. That they are innocent, that they are open, that they are revealed, unhidden, and uncovered before God and from one another. They previously had no concept of vulnerability, no concept of exposure, because they equally had no concept of having something shameful or having something that they wanted to conceal. No concept of that at all. But all of that changes now. Because the first thing that they discover in this new world of this new knowledge is a horrifying self-awareness. Awareness of themselves and also an awareness of their relation to the other. And suddenly, they know in that moment, looking at themselves, looking at the other, that they are naked, that they are exposed, that they are revealed, that they are uncovered. And they know also, simultaneously, for the first time, that they very much have something that they would like to hide. I'd like to make two sub-observations here. The first is this, shame demands a covering. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. In the immediate aftermath of their sin, their nakedness becomes instantly unbearable to them. Something that they had never noticed before is now something that immediately must change in order for them to go on. The sudden awareness of their guilt produces in them this devastating sense of shame, this overwhelming shame that demands from them a place to hide, a place of concealment. Shame and sin both demand a covering. Take, for example, the words that we read earlier from the Scripture reading this morning. Psalm of David, likely written shortly after his sin with Bathsheba, likely written after his exposure of that sin by the prophet Nathan. We read, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, 
and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand, that is God's hand, was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. In other words, God's presence had become intolerable to him while he was hiding the shame and the guilt of his sin. But I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Something we need to notice here. David acknowledges that the person is blessed whose sin is covered. That's how he starts the psalm. But then notice he goes on to say that he only received the forgiveness and covering he needed when I did not cover my iniquity. In other words, our sin, our shame, they need a covering, but they need a covering that you and I cannot provide ourselves. Any attempt that we make to cover our sin will simply be a cover-up, an attempt to conceal and to hide our sin rather than to expose it and confess it to God, to cast ourselves upon His mercy. And it is that attempt to cover their sin that Adam and Eve precisely follow, this impulse that they have to provide their own covering and therefore to cover up their sin. They realize that they've made a tremendous mistake. Their eyes are open to the new reality of their depravity and they frantically seek a remedy for their new spiritual condition themselves and in themselves. They don't cry out to God. They don't throw themselves upon His mercy. They try to fix the problem themselves. Does that sound like people we know? They sew fig leaf garments to cover themselves. Now, we should remember that the man and the woman are image bearers of the creating God, the God who creates, the God who created everything. They're image bearers of this God. And so this man and woman are designed to take this world that God has made and from it to cultivate and create things, to create life and culture and to cultivate beauty as they fill and subdue the earth. That's part of their mission. But the first piece of of culture that the Bible records that they make. The first human artifact in all of recorded history is this pathetic garment of fig leaves that they hope will conceal their shame. How far sin has already lowered these image bearers from their created purpose. But the sewing of these fig leaves together raises a related question. Where did they get the needle? They didn't weave these fig leaves together. There's a word for that in Hebrew. It's not the one here. They sewed, the text says, these fig leaves together. Now, God created them pure and innocent without any need for a covering. The way that God created them, they did not need garments for themselves. He created them in innocence that was expressed in their nakedness. So it's not as though they had a sewing kit laying around the garden that God had provided for this eventuality. It's not there. So presumably then, in order to sew this makeshift garment together, they first had to make their sewing equipment. Think about them that for a moment. That means that their desperation was so great and the force of their intention to cover themselves was so strong that they first needed to craft a needle. Something sharp. Something that would penetrate. Something that would punch holes 
in what God had made. And so not only is the first recorded act of human culture to make something to conceal their sin, but their initial act of creation first required that they create something intended to destroy. In order to be covered, understand this, they must first pierce. You can almost envision the frantic, cunning ingenuity that they devote to this task because they know God is coming. And so they rip and they tear and they pierce in order to cover up before God appears. Second thought. Our attempts to conceal our shame push us away from fellowship and push us increasingly toward further isolation. Verse 8, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. What were we created for? The Westminster Shorter Catechism answers like this. Question, what is the chief end of man? Answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. To glorify God and enjoy Him. That is what we, that is what you and I, that is what Adam and Eve were created for. Now, the fact that the man and the woman were able to identify the sound of God walking in the garden suggests that they were accustomed to experiencing God's presence. In other words, they were able to recognize the sound because they had heard it before. This is, by the way, another piece that we used a number of weeks ago to connect the Garden of Eden to the later tabernacle and temple because in the tabernacle and in the temple, God is said to walk in those places. He dwells with his people there and he's said to walk in the tabernacle and walk in the temple. And we compared that to the Garden of Eden where God is said to walk here in the cool of the day. These are the places where God is said to come and dwell with his people. You see, God desires to have fellowship with his people. He created us to know Him. But the temple, the tabernacle, also limit access to fellowship with God. The people could only enter the outer courts of these places, and only the high priest could enter the most holy place. And he could only go in once a year on the Day of Atonement, and only after significant purification rituals had been performed. The tabernacle and the temple were necessary because of sin. The holy presence of God now needed to be shielded, now needed to be veiled from access to the people. He would still dwell with his people, but they would not have immediate access to his presence. And the reason is because if sinful people have immediate access to the presence of a holy God, his holiness would break out and destroy them. That is the warning that occurs all throughout the Old Testament. So the tabernacle and the temple limit access to fellowship with God. But in Eden... There was no need for a temple building or a tabernacle structure because Adam and Eve were created in moral purity so that they could enjoy immediate access, immediate presence with God. But God dwelled in this place, the garden, as this initial and original sanctuary. And it is why the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem will be places where God once again dwells with his people and again there will be no temple there. It will be like a new Eden. So we read in Revelation 21, beginning in verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. 
And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be their God. God is a God who desires to dwell with his people. But then the text goes on later at the end of the chapter in verse 22, And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The new heavens, the new earth, the new city, they will renew and perfect and complete what was lost in Eden. Because we were created to enjoy fellowship with our Creator. Our chief end, our ultimate purpose, our reason for being is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And don't miss, by the way, that last part, to enjoy Him. The pursuit of knowing God is not intended for drudgery. It is not a burdensome religious requirement. I mean, what lover has ever found the pursuit of the beloved to be drudgery? No, poets write their sonnets, writers write their songs, because the pursuit of the one in whom our hearts delight moves us in the deepest part of our being. It stirs the affections. It moves our passions. Now, that is true of the earthly loves that we devote to earthly creatures who are like ourselves. Then what enjoyment must there be in knowing and being known by the heavenly love of the infinite God? of the one who, though we will have eternity to search him out, yet we will never reach the end of discovering the greatness of his being or exhaust the depths of the beauty of his character. As David exclaimed in Psalm 16, verse 11, You, God, make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So what is my point of all of this in relation to our text in Genesis chapter 3? My point is this. Surely every previous time that Adam and Eve had heard the sound of God walking to meet them, it must have thrilled the deepest part of their souls. Because in His presence there is fullness of joy. At His right hand are pleasures forevermore. They had never tasted a fruit so enjoyable, so delightful as experiencing the presence of the God who had made them. Every time they heard this sound, they likely ran to him in their delight. But no more. Their joy in God is suddenly gone. Their excitement to be in his presence has vanished, it's dissipated. Now they hear the sound of God coming, and for the first time, they are afraid, and so they hide. And nothing in this whole chapter more eloquently states the misery and the corruption into which man has now fallen than at the sound of God coming to meet him, there is now terror and panic and the need to be hidden. They have already tried to cover up their nakedness from one another. But now they realize that before God, that will not be enough. They need not only to be covered, they need to be hidden. 
suddenly the serpent's confident assertion that you will not surely die no longer feels quite so certain. So their first impulse is the impulse of the guilty. Perhaps I can hide my eyes. Perhaps I can hide myself from the sight of God. Perhaps he will not see me. Perhaps he will not know. Perhaps I can hide my guilt from the Most High. See how quickly they are willing to just throw away their happy fellowship with God. In a moment, all eyes turn now to self-preservation, and we see how quickly shame has worked in their hearts. It pushes us away from fellowship and increasingly toward isolation. And so first their shame has caused them to conceal, and now their shame causes them to hide. Shame demands a covering, and it pushes us away from fellowship and toward isolation. Before we go on, I'd like to make a couple of comments of application here. The first is this. Attempts to cover our sin and our shame ourselves won't work. We have the same instinct that Adam and Eve had, which isn't really all that surprising because this new depraved nature that they are experiencing is the same sin nature that they have passed to each one of us. We share their nature, and so it's not surprising that we share their methods. When we sin, we are also quick to scrabble for any means that we can think of to cover, to cover up, to conceal, to hide the evidence of the guilt and the shame that lies within. And our methods for covering ourselves are just as pathetic and ineffective as Adam and Eve's. We lie. We blame shift. We justify. We make excuses. We misrepresent the truth. We deceive. We manipulate. It won't work. It won't work to hide us from the sight of the one before whom every thought and every intention of the heart is laid bare. Or sometimes we think that we can provide a covering for ourselves through our own efforts and industry. By our own moral efforts and good works, we can make a covering for ourselves that will please God. But those efforts are just as ineffective for covering our guilt and shame as those hastily sown fig leaves were. Our sin needs a covering, but it's not one that we can provide. Second thought of application here. Shame is a brutal part of the sin cycle. When we try to fight sin in our own strength, when we try to cover our shame through our own methods, we get quickly trapped in the sin cycle. And here's what I mean by the sin cycle. We often find that we are tempted to indulge a sinful desire that we particularly struggle with. And we then commit that sin, and we experience briefly an all-too-fleeting moment of the pleasure that we have been pursuing in that sin, But then, in a flash, that pleasure is gone. And what's left in its place is a devastating sense of shame and brokenness. And often in those moments, rather than confess that sin, we kind of hunker down and we tell ourselves that we will never do it again. We just resolve we are not going to go down this path again. And we mean it in those moments. We do. We mean it. We intend to be different this time. But then a little bit of time passes. The guilt and the shame they begin to wear off. They begin to fade. And suddenly that temptation is presented to us again or something very much like it. And again we commit the sin and again we are overwhelmed with the shame. But to this time, the sh- added to the shame is now added despair. 
Because we resolved, we told ourselves that we weren't going down this path again, and yet here we are again. And so despite our best efforts, despite our best intentions, we don't seem to be able to get out of this cycle of sin that we are in. So when this happens and when this cycle repeats over and over and over again, one of two things typically happens. Either the shame and despair grow so deep that we eventually succumb to a a hopelessness that we are enslaved and that we cannot ever possibly get out. So why should we even continue trying and we just give ourselves over to the despondency and the humiliation and the shame? We just choose to live in the brokenness. Or we become so comfortable with the sin that eventually the guilt and the shame of it just wear off altogether. And we just go on sinning and We're not even bothered anymore. We have beaten our consciences into silence. In either case, Satan is delighted and we are destroyed. But David shows us that there is a third way. There is a better way. A way to break this sin cycle. Rather than seek to hide or conceal our sin, we must confess our transgressions to the Lord, cast ourselves upon his mercy and receive the covering that only he can give to us. And when we do, we will find that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin. Sin produces unbearable shame. Second primary thought from our passage. Sin never gives what it promises. Verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. They thought that they were about to ascend to the heavens. They thought divinity was in their grasp. They thought like the serpent, I will make myself like the Most High. Sin promised them power, promised them authority, promised them pleasure, worship, honor, but it delivered to them fear, self-loathing, and brokenness. Observe with me two thoughts about the immediate after effects of sin. The first is this, sin destroys relationships. There is no more basic truth in our fallen world than that one. Sin destroys relationships. And we see that reality here both on the vertical level and on the horizontal level. They have begun by trying to conceal themselves from one another, to hide themselves from each other, and now they are trying to hide themselves from the God who created them and who they have formerly enjoyed fellowship with. Every aspect of relationship that they have known, every sphere of community that they have experienced is immediately corrupted by their sin. God comes and he calls to the man, where are you? Where are you? 
As we noted last week, the serpent begins his temptation by subverting the created order. He addresses himself to Eve rather than to her husband Adam, who had been given the authority over the garden and given authority over his wife and given authority over creation. But the serpent subverts that he comes to Eve. God resets and reaffirms the created order because he comes asking the man to give an account for himself and for his wife, for the garden, for the creation committed to his care. He says to Adam, Adam, where are you? Now this question is not asked because God is under any uncertainty about where they are or what they have done. He knows precisely where they are. He knows exactly what they have done. In fact, if God did not know those things already, in hiding themselves, they would have given themselves away thoroughly. In doing the very thing that they hope would conceal their guilt, they have entirely given up the game. Most dads know within about 30 seconds of walking in the front door how things have been going in the home that day. Because on most days, there are squeals of, Dad's home, the sound of running feet to greet him with joy. When I come home and there is silence, and I have to go hunting for my children, I know already that they are anticipating that my approach means the advent of their discipline that is waiting for them. So they are hiding themselves. And they are not anticipating my approach with joy any longer. Which means that from the moment I walk in the door, I already know more about them than what they are trying to hide from me. It's a juvenile tactic. It's one that Adam and Eve employ here, and it's one that we employ in our own lives. The same sort of tactic that our children apply on us, we endeavor to apply to our Heavenly Father. If it doesn't escape our finite notice, how can it escape the notice of the one who knows all things? And so the ridiculousness of this whole situation is that even if God did not know already, their very tactics have given themselves away. Likely the man and the woman here are expecting clearly something terrible to happen, and yet they couldn't know what exactly is coming for them because they have never experienced anything like judgment before. They're expecting something perhaps like fire and lightning and instant annihilation. There is some nameless dread that has now fallen upon them that something is coming for them that they will not want, that they will not enjoy the experience of. But instead they are surprised with the gentleness and the mercy of a series of fatherly questions. Beginning with, oh Adam, where are you? And how much is now in that question? Because if it had been asked of Adam only a short time before, the answer would have been so easy. But God, I'm in the garden that you have made for me with the woman who you have given for me. And together we are reigning here in the place that you have put us and we are fulfilling the mission that you have called for us to do. We are reigning and ruling and filling and subduing. Here we are. There would have been no need for the question at all. But now there is every need for this question because by their disobedience, they have thrown themselves into the chaos of a sea of sin in which they no longer know who they are. They no longer know who they are in relation to one another. They no longer know who they are in relation to God. They no longer know what is their purpose. They no longer know what is their future. They know nothing about anything anymore that used to be firm ground. Everything is now moving and shifting beyond their feet. They have placed this world that God ordered back into chaos. So where are you? Adam says, I hid myself when I heard you because I was afraid, because I was naked. 
And there it is. Adam is afraid because already he understands that he cannot stand before God without a covering any longer. His guilt and his sin mean that from here forward, there will need to be something that stands between God and man. In the instant of their rebellion, an infinite chasm has now opened between the moral condition of the man and the woman and the God who created them. A a yawning abyss has opened between them, separated infinitely by the condition in which they now find themselves and the moral perfection and holiness of the God who now stands to ask them to give an account of themselves. And so they no longer can stand before this God without being very much afraid. They need a covering. Then God asks Adam who informed him that he was naked. Again, notice that God doesn't simply accuse Adam. He doesn't say to him, give it up, I know everything. I've seen everything. You've made yourself my enemy. You're a rebel, prepared to die. No, God graciously gives Adam the opportunity to confess. That's the offer here. Confess your sin, Adam. In other words, God is saying, Adam, you have a knowledge other than the knowledge of innocence and goodness that I gave you. So where did you get it? Have you disobeyed? Does Adam take this opportunity to confess his sin, to lay himself bare before God, to prostrate himself before this good God who has given him every good gift and apply himself to God's mercy? (laughs) The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit. And I ate. Did you hear that bump just now? That was the sound of Adam throwing his wife under the bus and then driving over her. In fact, there were actually two bumps there. Because right after throwing Eve under the bus, Adam tries to throw God under the bus too. Listen, this is all her fault. We're in this situation because of her. She's the one who ate the fruit. She ate it and then she gave it to me. And by the way, while we're on the subject of her, let's remember who gave her to me. When I was on my own, I wasn't here eating the fruit of this tree. I was doing just fine. Who is it, by the way, who said, it is not good for me to be alone? Who is it that said, I need a helper? Well, she helped me. Great plan. (laughs) That's what he's saying, guys. His sin is only moments old. And yet already Adam has mastered the art of blame shifting and self-justification. He's using his wife as a human shield. He knows he needs a covering. He needs a better covering than these fig leaves are providing. And so he's endeavoring to use her as the covering that he needs. He is placing her between him and the wrath of God that he believes is coming. She's the covering that he's looking for, or so he imagines. When I first started outlining this passage in in early prep a few weeks ago, it happened to be the Sunday, the week of the Sunday that I was preaching about marriage back in chapter 2. So as I was preparing to preach about marriage that week, I was doing a little bit of advanced work on this text. I began outlining this passage, and when I got to that statement from Adam, I suddenly had tears standing in my eyes, and I was all choked up. Because I was preparing to preach about the joyful and exuberant exclamation that bursts out of Adam's lips the moment that he sees Eve for the first time. When he says, at last, one who is like me, 
bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, at last, overwhelmed, delighted by the provision of God in the form of this bride. But the next time that we hear Adam speak, the words that are coming out of his mouth are to blame the woman and to blame God for giving her to him. Brothers and sisters, sin destroys relationships. It has since Genesis 3, and it continues to wreak havoc in our relationships today. Sin promises joy, and it delivers heartache. And let's not move on until we acknowledge that we justify our sin in approximately the same kinds of ways that Adam does. We are masters of the blame-shifting maneuver. Young children do this all the time. I did this because they did that. We never really grow out of that blame-shifting tendency. We just get a little bit more sophisticated in doing it. We justify our sin because of the sins of others against us. So it must be okay. That is carnal thinking just like it was carnal thinking in Adam. Nor, like Adam, are we above blaming God for our sin. How much sexual infidelity and pornography and gluttony, how much substance abuse and chronic complaining and grumbling is the result of the indulgence of self-pity for things in our lives that we secretly blame God for? God, I wouldn't be sinning like this if you had given me this thing that I really want or this thing that I really need or if you hadn't taken away that thing. But we have to reject that line of thinking. Adam is speaking like the serpent here. And when we self-justify and blame shift in those ways, we are thinking and speaking like the serpent too. James 1 tells us that no one gets to say, I was tempted by God for my sin. It's his fault. No one gets to say that. Adam doesn't. We don't. Our blame shifting is a lie. Do you want to know why you and I sin when we sin? It's not because of God. It's not because of the sin of other people. It's because of our own desires. If you want to know why we struggle with sin, look within. Look at your heart. Second thought about what sin promises and doesn't deliver. Sin promises to make us like God, but it ends up making us unlike Him. The whole reason that they are in this ridiculous position of trying to hide from God and cover themselves with fig leaves is because they believed the lie that they could be like God. That's why they're in this mess. And now, they can't even bear to be in the presence of God. How far they have fallen so quickly. They were created in God's image, but in an attempt to be like God on their terms, they have marred and corrupted that image, so that they are now more unlike God than they have ever been. The tree has not given them the infinite knowledge that belongs to God. It has only opened their eyes to a new kind of depravity. And this is one of the bitter ironies of the wretched bargain that they have made. Because their eyes are opened, but they have never seen less clearly. They see with new sight, but with profoundly less clarity. Now their way of seeing, that is the way in which they spiritually and intellectually and affectionally process the world around them, this new way of seeing is corrupted. 
So for the first time, they have spiritual eyes that cannot see what God would have them to see and ears that cannot hear what God would have them to hear because their eyes were opened. Now they see their nakedness as their shame. They hear the sound of God's approach as the sound of impending disaster rather than impending delight. Now they see around them things to be afraid of, things to hide from. And now they see in one another someone to be exploited and manipulated. But the one thing that they do see clearly is that they are now profoundly worse off than they were before. Listen to what Eve says. Eve laments, the serpent deceived me and I ate. We do have to just note here, she answers with a great deal more honesty and humility than her husband does. She does not try to blame God, and she does not try to blame Adam like Adam blames her, even though, as we looked at last week, Adam really is the one who is to blame for this whole situation. So if there's anyone that you could pass blame to and make a reasonable argument for, it's Adam, and she doesn't do it. But what she acknowledges is what they learned immediately after their rebellion that they had been deceived. The game's up now, and they know they've been played. They knew instantly that what they had received was not what the serpent had promised them. They are not like God. Sin never delivers what it promises. So where do we go from here? And that leads to the final thought this morning. In order to experience the fellowship with God that we were created for, we need a covering for our sin and shame. Adam and Eve had a correct impulse here. They knew that they could no longer stand before God without a covering, and they were right to be afraid. But they were wrong in thinking that they could adequately cover themselves. That was their mistake. Fig leaves and hiding places will never be enough. As David said, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. But he also says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. So how do we get this covering that we need if we are not the ones able to cover our sin? And the answer is that we need a covering, but only one that God can provide. We do not need something to hide our scarlet letter. We need someone to remove it. Someone to take our unrighteousness and to in turn cover us with his perfect righteousness. That's what we need. And at the end of this chapter, next week, we will see that God will provide a covering for Adam and Eve. He will take from them their pathetic garments of fig leaves and he will give them new garments of skin. But even that gracious covering from God is temporary. It is meant to point to something else. That they will need a covering but something greater, something still to come. When Jesus, the perfect, spotless Lamb of God, comes, notice that at the foot of the cross, His garments are divided for spoil by the soldiers at the foot of the cross. He is stripped. He is made naked. So that He takes not only the guilt of our sin, but He takes the seal of our shame, and He nails it with Him to the cross. And like our pitiful attempt to cover ourselves through sewing those fig leaves together involved piercing what God had made. So he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and it is by his wounds that we are healed, that we are covered. And so Christ graciously takes from us the guilt of our sin and our shame, places it upon himself, and gives us in return the covering of his perfect righteousness so that we can once again stand before the God who made us without fear. Friend, if you are here this morning and you have been desperately trying to cover your shame and guilt, if you have been trying to hide, trying to conceal, to cover yourself with your own works or your own efforts or whatever it is, it's all hopeless. You need a covering, but you can't provide it. But the good news is God has already provided it. He offers to clothe you in the radiant garment of Christ's perfect righteousness who was made naked for you and who died in your place. So that you can, so you can continue to hide in your fear, to stitch a pitiful covering for yourself that can't adequately conceal you. Or you can turn even today in Christ to Christ in faith to receive the only covering that you will ever need, to be restored to the fellowship of the God that you were created to enjoy forever. There came a day when Hester Prynne removed the scarlet letter, the letter that had for her life branded her with the shame of her guilt. The author provides this commentary of the relief that she experienced when the emblem of her shame was removed. She had not known the weight until she felt the freedom. So the question today is the one that God asks. Where are you? Happy is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, it is overwhelming to consider the thought that while we were your enemies, that while we were in rebellion against you, that Christ died for us. How can we even imagine the love that is described in John? That so great is this love that you have for us that you sent your son into the world to provide this covering that we so desperately needed. Father, humble us now so that we would put away these feeble efforts of our own to clothe ourselves, to cover ourselves, to hide, to conceal ourselves from you. May we instead cast ourselves upon your mercy to confess our transgressions to you and that you are faithful and just to cleanse us from our unrighteousness. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen.